0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And indeed, it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett, and I'll be here until six tonight. Today, Netanyahu's visit. Lots of opposition I'll be speaking with two Palestinians. Carolyn Coe in Afghanistan with the Afghan Peace Volunteers, the Pine Gap protesters from 2016 facing court in Alice Springs, Oceana Gold and El Salvador, a potted history of what's been going on there for many years. But first...
2: My name is Dale Butler. I'm currently the... Chief Technical Officer of a company called Alavare Energy. Where I am doing um, advanced inverters for solar and energy storage systems. I remember that there were some meetings from people whose name I can't remember. But the only one I can remember was possibly Bevan Ramston. But there were meetings about setting up a community radio station. The question then became how do we build this thing and they somehow, because I'd already built a pirate radio station out at Monash with the Monash students, I somehow had the idea that I would be able to do this, which I could, of course. We'd built the pirate radio station. It was called uh, 3PR, People's Radio, and actually the transmitter from that is going to be sent to given to the museum, Melbourne Museum shortly. I built that to fit in the back seat of a Vanguard car, which parked in a car park near the vice chancellor's house, and then we dug an underground trench out to his power box, stole some of his power, and also two of his and one of his telephone lines, so we could communicate. In fact, I finished up with two telephone lines because we had some insiders in the then telecom PNG people who assisted us with the um, appropriation of the telephone lines. So programs for that. Radio were sent down over the telephone, and some on tape, I believe. So after that, finally got brought to an end by jamming, and then shortly after that, the 3CR people approached me to build a transmitter for them, which was down in um, Armadale. I built the transmitter at Armadale with the assistance of some young fellows, mostly from RMIT. We also put up, we put the antenna up on the roof of Armadale, which wasn't a very satisfactory run, but I did manage to load it up and feed it with a transmitter, which was about 500 watts. We also sent somebody. We managed to buy from the ABC one of their old studio setups, and we brought it over from Adelaide in you know, a train, and we used all the equipment out of that to set up the, the audio chains. <laughs> so, so old-fashioned by today's standards, though, everything was valve-operated. The transmitter, however, had transistors in it. It was quite revolutionary at the time. And the transmitter worked extremely well. We were examined by the uh, relevant authorities and given a licence to transmit, which in itself was very interesting because it was a change of government. When we set up the station, it was a Labour government and it became a Liberal government and they didn't want to give us a licence. So they sent down these teams to try and show that we're technically inadequate. In fact, we're way technically well exceeded the requirements of the of the Act. So they didn't have any excuse. So to force the matter, the Board of 3CO, which I was a member of at the time, decided they would go to air and advertise the fact they were going to air. They had passed all the relevant things. And about five minutes before we actually turned the transmitter on, a taxi pulled up out the front. A person from the Department, drunk as a skunk, fell out of a bloody taxi and gave us his if, if and licence and off oh, he went again. <laughs> it's really funny. We put, the, we put the station to air and it went on for a long time at Armidale and then we decided the Collingwood City Council made available to us some space in, one of the, in the yard behind the town hall and we put up a proper um, one-eighth wavelength. It was about all we could afford antenna with a buried copper ground mat and a transmitter hut. I built a new transmitter to go into the transmitter hut and transferred all the stuff over into that and we had, a tele- we had telephone lines from there. Then we still have the studios at Armidale we, we, and then we later, they later moved the um, studios over to uh, Fitzroy or Collingwood or somewhere.
1: You were listening to the voice of Dale Butler speaking with 3CR project's coordinator, Juliet Fox, last year. And that was part of a longer research interview for the book Radical Radio to celebrate 40 years of 3CR. Sadly, Dale passed away in late January and you are invited to join in celebrating and remembering the life and work of Dale at the music room of Medley Hall, 48 Drummond Street, Carlton, this Saturday 4th of March, his birthday, for a 2 p.m. start. In lieu of flowers, the family asks that contributions be made to an education fund for Pandora Butler. Envelopes will be available on the day, RSVP for catering to megsviolin99 at gmail.com. Megsviolin99 at gmail.com the Israeli Prime Minister might have been feeling the love in Australia. Not my words, but from an SBS article when he attended the Central Synagogue in Bondi Junction last Wednesday, ably supported by the Liberals of Turnbull, Abbott and Howard. But elsewhere in Australia, many others deplore the visit of a man who should be facing war crimes and crimes against humanity and whose actions have been condemned by the UN. A vote in December, which the Australian government dissociated itself from. And in the words of one activist, the visit of Netanyahu is an affront to the values of humanity and justice. Netanyahu, go to The Hague. You are not welcome here. People protested in Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra and other places, and there were statements by prominent people opposed to the visit, and Jewish Australians saying no to Netanyahu by signing a petition. I'm speaking with Nasser Mashni from APAN, the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, and as I said in the introduction, Nasser, despite the SBS article heading, the Prime Minister was not feeling the love from many, many Australians and there was a statement prepared by APAN for people to sign to. Can you outline the statement, in particular the last paragraph?
3: Of course, Jen. The love wasn't felt from a broad cross-section of Australians and and certainly from right-thinking Australians and and Australians who believe in human rights that are applicable to all humans, regardless of race, colour or creed. Our statement, APAN statement, in fact, uh, garnished over 60 signatures of prominent Australians And if I could just read the last paragraph to you from our statement, which our listeners could visit themselves at apan.org.au. But the last paragraph specifically says that the Australian government needs to rethink its one-sided support for the Israeli government. We are appalled that our government opposes the recent UN Security Council resolution supporting the application of international law to Israel and Palestine, when most nations, including the United Kingdom, Germany, France and New Zealand... Supported, Even the USA did not oppose it. It is time for the suffering of the Palestinian people to stop, and for Australia to take a more balanced role in supporting the application of international law and not supporting Mr Netanyahu and his policies. And Jan, we had some signatures, and to give you an an understanding of the the calibre of the people, Gavin Griffith QC, former Solicitor General, the Honourable Murray Wilcox, Order of Australia, Queen's Council, former Federal Court Judge, Julian Burnside, Order of Australia, Queen's Council. John Karkar, Queen's Council. Paul Hayward-Smith, Queen's Council. Claire O'Connor, Special Counsel. Janet Holmes, Court, Australian Cross. Jan Stansthorpe, Stanhope, excuse me, ACT Chief Minister, 2001 to 2011. Along with some former diplomats and other former members of uh, Parliament. So, a really, um, a who's who of, uh, people who care about human rights.
1: And I imagine you could have, um, if it had more time, you could have got many, many more people on that
3: list. Well, in fact, we could have got many, many more people on that list by just changing one word, yeah? And and that word, well, a couple of words, excuse me, and, and those words were you know, asking our politicians to deny his entry. If we'd have just said that they don't support his entry, we would have had hundreds of signatures.
1: What about the Labor Party elders who have been coming out of the woodwork in the last couple of weeks?
3: I think um, Bob Hawke triggered it. I think Bob Karner has done a lot of work in the background within the ALP and certainly back in his time as Foreign Minister with Julia Gillard. But um, Bob Hawke wrote an article in the Australian Financial Review talking about his very, very Zionist long-term love of the State of Israel and called for the Parliament, for our politicians, to recognise the State of Palestine, to be on the right side of history, to join 136 other countries worldwide to recognise the State of Palestine. I mean, this is uh, Bob Hawke who in the, in the early 70s when he was uh, heading the ACTU during the 73 Yom Kippur War called for the US to nuke Cairo. So Bob Hawke has done a complete transformation in 40-odd years to go from, you know, um, wanting to nuke uh, the capital of the Arab world, if you will, to uh, asking or stating that Australians to recognise the state of Palestine. Now, from that statement, we had statements from... Gareth Evans, former foreign minister, Bob Carthorn, former minister, and even from Kevin Rudd, former prime minister. I've got to tell you, these guys are making, look, they're great statements and, and we support the premise of the statement, but the basis under which they're making it isn't because of their love for Palestinians. It isn't because of their love for international human rights and applicability of international human rights to Palestinians. It's because they're trying to save Israel from itself whilst the red carpet was rolled out for, for Benjamin Netanyahu and the Liberal Party, you know, fed it all over him, the Labor Party, for all intents and purposes, still received him very warmly. And it was only, if you will, the left part of the ALP party that really put up any object, objection and, and led by the likes of Maria Van Vakeneau and others.
1: Yes, there are a number of parliamentarians who openly support Palestine.
3: There are, sadly, uh, not many would like not enough and um, when you consider the sort of trumpet cheering support that uh, Israel enjoys from within the Liberal Party and that includes Malcolm Turnbull, you know, uh, Julia Bishop but then within the Labor Party, you know, Michael Danby, Mark Dreyfus, you know, the support that Israel gets within our parliament is just a beggar belief, certainly for, for, for a rogue state that is guilty of so many crimes.
1: And you think of how many of those politicians have been on the, the freebie trips to Israel and being feted by Israelis?
3: There's no question. Every parliamentarian in their first term is invited on one of these business class junkets, they keep getting invited until they say yes or no. And many of them have been on more than one. They're taken on the Hollywood tour and helicoptered across the Golan. And while well, they come back, you know, having been, what's well, the best money that the Zionist lobby and the Israel lobby can spend?
1: Not surprisingly, I believe, was the almost total unquestioning of the the corporate media during his visit, and particularly of his press conference. You maintain it contained absolute lies. Can you explain the issues of that press conference that you termed absolute lies? He was allowed to
3: speak unchallenged. Uh, You know, and we talk about Unchallenging. and A couple of particular references. I mean, here's a guy, allegedly the Australian government still believes in a two-state solution. Yet when Benjamin Netanyahu talk, talks about a two-state, what he says, he talks about the Gaza evacuation, how horrific that was for Israelis, where, you know, some 10,000 Israeli settlers illegally occupying Gaza, and they were protected by tens of thousands of Israeli troops. They were evacuated from Gaza and taken to the West Bank and compensated. Benjamin Netanyahu was a member of Ariel Sharon's cabinet when that happened. Benjamin Netanyahu resigned in protest at the evacuation of those settlers from Gaza. Ariel Sharon, a war criminal and a butcher from 1982, of Sabra Shatila, even that monster wasn't monstrous enough for Benjamin Netanyahu. Then we get to the point where we start talking about what sort of state would we expect if we gave the Palestinians? Would it be another... Islamic State. Well, the Palestinians are freedom-loving people. They want the opportunity to send their kids to school without fear they'll be shot with a sniper. They want the opportunity to tender their own legal currency. Today, if you're a Palestinian in the West Bank, you have to use the Israeli shekel. The um, birth registry and the death registry is controlled by the Israelis. Movement between cities has to be coordinated through checkpoints. To leave the West Bank, the Israeli-controlled West Bank and East Jerusalem, you need an Israeli. You have to use an Israeli exit point. Now, he talks about this mythical Palestinian state, and, and he's got this really, really wonderful quote that he talks about, uh, and he spoke about it in, in both the Turnbull press conferences or also the Trump conference uh, press conference, where he says Israel must retain the overriding security control over the entire area west of the Jordan River. If we have to use your money and you've got control of all of the, our borders, and we're landlocked, sea-locked and air-locked. That doesn't sound like an independent state to me. I mean, based on that logic, I'd like to evacuate a, a bank. I'd be a millionaire, I reckon.
1: Yes, and he doesn't talk much about Gaza today, does he, and all his incursions from the thousands and thousands of Palestinians who've died, who've been injured, who've lost their homes, their livelihoods. People are trying or suggesting that he should be at the Hague, Charged with war crimes, you say, well, no, they're wa- not war crimes because the Palestinians aren't at war.
3: They are just crimes against humanity, and and he should be tried under the under the terms of genocide. And when we have a look just in the word siege, and it you know, often the language that we use in today's world is just moved over. But a siege and its implications. I mean, we need to think about this in a medieval context, whether it was the Romans or the, the Ottomans or the crusaders, you, you, you laid siege to a castle. You deprived the inhabitants of the, the city or the castle of water, food, and we're talking before refrigeration, etc. so food ran out pretty quick and it spoiled pretty quickly. You starved the occupants until they, A, surrendered, or or, or or B, they were so weak they couldn't defend themselves. Gaza's been under siege since 2006. Now, Ehud Olmert, a previous prime minister of Israel, he starved the siege. But since 2009 to date, Benjamin Netanyahu has been, has presided over that, the siege. And three Israeli campaigns, the most recent in 2014, Israel bombed Gaza for almost two months, and entire families were wiped out. They bombed 63 water facilities and destroyed 23. The only power plant in Gaza was bombed four times. Two and a half thousand Palestinians were killed. Over 1,500 of them were civilians. 550 children. I mean, the numbers are just uh, staggering. But then to make it even... uh, To put all that into insignificance, this warmonger, when the world was starting to shout its protest at the wanton death and destruction, this guy went on on TV and he said... He told the world around, the, the world public, to not respond too sympathetically to the horrifying images. He said, the Palestinians, and this is a quote want to pile up as many civilian dead as they can. They use telegenically dead Palestinians for their cause. I mean, this man killed thousands of Palestinians, caused of telegenically dead, and he gets welcomed into Australia. It just beggars
1: belief. And a man who's refused to allow supplies in for the people to be able to try and rebuild their yes, lives.
3: Absolutely. And so you, you get things like whether it's a UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, you know, in, this is in, in, in 2008. Said This was after the incursion in, in, in 08. said, the whole civilization has been destroyed. I'm not exaggerating. It's almost unbelievable that the world doesn't care what's happening. Nine years later, nothing's been done. In 2009, the UN water said that 90% of Gaza's water was undrinkable. In 2012, they said, if things continue the way they are, Gaza would be uninhabitable by 2020. They repeated it in 2015. And here we are in 2017. Two million people, a million of them under 18, are living in the most densely populated place on Earth where 90% of the water is uninhabitable. And the UN says that that area will be uninhabitable in three years from today. Nobody says anything. And the man presiding over this open-air prison is brought in on a hero's welcome.
1: And I think it's summed up by the sentence given to an Israeli medic I think he was an army medic who shot at close range in the head of a 21 year old severely wounded man Palestinian man in Hebron last year. He got 18 months in a demotion and they're talking about appealing. Too harsh.
3: Too harsh. And, and you know under thought he could have got 20 years. Yeah, He gets 18 months and, and they're appealing, appealing the sentence and the only reason that this got this far, as you know, Jan, is that a Palestinian was able to videotape the execution. I mean, this soldier wasn't even there for the interaction, arrived minutes later, walked up and just put his gun to the guy's head and blew his brains out. Just cold-blooded murder, captured for the world to see on video. And he can get less than 18 months. Benjamin Netanyahu is calling for his exoneration and... uh, a presidential pardon, 12-year-old and 14-year-old Palestinians throwing rocks at tanks are sentenced to more than 18 months.
1: Where to from here? He's gone?
3: He's gone, and uh, none too soon, obviously. But we'd be calling upon, you know, fair-minded and and human-thinking Australians to heed the call of Palestinian civil society and to boycott Israel, to divest from Israel, and to ask for our government to sanction Israel, boycott, divest, and sanction the state of Israel until it complies with international laws and it, it, it treats the indigenous people of Palestine, Israel, with rights that, that should be applicable under international law.
1: And if people would like to find out more, is a good place to go to the APAN's website.
3: Yeah, absolutely. They can they can go to apan.org.au and find out all about activities around Australia, the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, APAN, au, and we'd welcome people to join uh, our organisation. We're a member, member organisation, and they can read about our policies and what we support, and uh, we, we'd love for people to join
1: us. Thank I was speaking there with Nasser Mashni from APAN, the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. As I said earlier, there were rallies in most capitals in Australia against Netanyahu's visit at the Melbourne rally. One of the speakers was Riyad Adassi, a Palestinian nurse living and working here in Melbourne.
4: Palestine has been taken, as you all know, and we have been in relentless struggle for our existence, for our freedom, for the last 70-plus years or even more. Things have been going from bad to worse to worse for us. Palestine, or what's remained of it now, the Zionist entity has taken over. We live in cantons. We live under blockade. We live under siege. What you take for granted as simple things, as water, electricity, medical care, or health care, is all available for, for you. But when it comes to the Palestinians, especially Gaza, they get a couple of hours per day of electricity. Hardly any drinking water that is proper. It's not even proper for animals. Imagine that people have to use it every single day. Shortage of medical supplies, shortage of equipment, shortage of proper health care. International organizations, local organizations have done their best to provide for the Palestinians who live in Gaza. I'll give you just a little example of what the blockade has done to people. According to the Palestinian Ministry of Health Coordination Office, and the Coordination Office means that it is the office that actually sends reports to the Israeli side or the Zionist side to get permits for sick people to travel the number of applications was around two hundred and thirty thousand applications for sick people who need immediate care that is not available in gaza and when i talk about two hundred thousand plus people that includes children cancer patients cardiac patients of those only 62 percent were permitted to travel across the zionist entity to reach Proper health care, meaning that 38%, which is a huge number. I'm talking about people with feelings, people who have families, children of parents who are prohibited from traveling under false accusations of security. The latest victim was the wife of a friend of mine. She only died three days ago. I'm really pissed off. She went into coma. She was taken to the Central Hospital, Shifa Hospital ICU, intensive care. They had only one ampule of a specific drug to help her out and they had to go to pharmacies to find a couple more ampules awaiting the mercy of the bloody occupation to give her permit to travel to East Jerusalem to another Palestinian hospital in East Jerusalem but it was too late she died and the permit never came. Another victim is my sister-in-law. She's suffering from an advanced cancer. She had the necessary surgery in Gaza on the hands of one of my great friends who who operated on her, and she needed the chemotherapy to follow. She had to wait for two whole months to be approved to travel to, uh, to Nablus, which is supposedly under the Palestinian control, to receive essential chemotherapy. Her cancer is getting worse and I don't know how long she's got. And all of this is because of the bloody blockade. My message to the successive Australian governments, including the one we have, stop being a bed dog to the U.S. Stop being a lap dog for the bloody Zionists because they are murderers. And this makes you one you are murderers you are criminals you are bloody colonists that's what you are the only thing is that you have shaved beards nice expensive suits this makes you even worse you are all hypocrites you are all idiots you have the least and you care the least about human rights and people we are people I am a human being, I'm a Palestinian working in Australian hospitals here saving lives every single day. Our Prime Minister keeps saying he's doing what he thinks is best for Australia. Well mate, it's not best for Australia to receive a criminal. You are a bloody corporate criminal. Wake up people, wake up Australia, we are not the enemy. Thank you all for coming and despite everything. Said with me, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free.
1: And that was Riyadh, a Palestinian nurse, now living and working in Melbourne, in Melbourne hospitals. At the rally against Netanyahu on the 19th of February, it's 4:26 on 3CR in Melbourne. go to vcr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours in two thousand and sixteen, Carolyn Co spent time in Kabul, Afghanistan as a guest of the Afghan peace volunteers and she's also a contributor to the voices of Creative Nonviolence webpage. When I spoke with Caroline recently. I asked her first about her background, which led her to Afghanistan.
5: I have been following the work of Voices for Creative Nonviolence for several years, even when they were under a different name, Voices in the Wilderness. always admired their work. I guess it was about 2008, 2009, that winter, I decided to go to Jordan and Syria to see what was happening What was the situation of the Iraqi refugees in those countries? And before I went, I contacted Kathy Kelly, um, who I had heard speak in Maine uh, a few times, and asked her for some advice because I knew that she and other members of Voices had had visited with the Iraqi refugees. And um, that contact just started a more personal relationship. And a couple of years ago, I decided um, I really wanted to go to Afghanistan because I so admired the work of the Afghan peace volunteers uh, that Voices had worked with for a few years. And so I contacted her, and she said, well, can you go on a a delegation in two weeks? And I had just come back from Palestine, and I, I felt... So I wasn't ready to leave at that time, but I did leave and go on my first delegation to Kabul later that year in in December.
1: I'll just take you back to that first trip to the Middle East to Jordan and Syria. What was that like?
5: It felt like a whirlwind. I was there for about three weeks, and. Because I had reached out to Kathy uh, Kelly and Kathy Breen as well, also with Voices beforehand, I had so many contacts that I was sometimes conducting, you know, as many as six interviews in a day, meeting with different refugees. It was exhausting and heartbreaking and also... Such a, a beautiful experience as well. Just the, the generosity and the hospitality, and yeah, i <laughs> not so about that.
1: Have you been able to follow up on any of those people you met at that time to see how they went?
5: I was initially there was a a woman that I stayed with, um, an Iraqi uh, refugee I stayed with in, in Amman, Jordan, and a couple years later when I was visiting entering Palestine through Jordan. I again stayed with her and saw her again. And there was an Iraqi refugee who resettled in California. And for a while, I stayed in contact with him by phone and email. But regrettably, with both of them, the emails that I have and phone numbers I have don't seem to work. So I have lost, lost touch with them and with all of those whom I met at the time.
1: And your time in Palestine?
5: I have been in Palestine a few times. My first trip was actually in 2009. I was on a code pink delegation to Gaza after one of the bombing campaigns of Gaza. And then I later visited the West Bank, and I visited the West Bank a few times. I would go about every two years in the summer, but it's been uh, two and a half years since I've been to Palestine. And I, in the times I did go, I certainly noticed a change. You know, in my first visit to the West Bank, there were weekly Friday demonstrations in so many parts of the occupied territories. And then by my last visit, There were a few places where they'd have special demonstrations and a couple of villages still had Friday demonstrations, but the resistance had changed in form, I would say.
1: You must be concerned about the situation there at the moment, especially with Trump giving the all clear to settlements, more settlement buildings.
5: Yeah, it's so concerning, but in, in truth, U.S. policy towards the Palestinians. I don't know if it has ever been good. <laughs> you know, even when people are in government say, "Oh, you shouldn't continue to build the settlements." You know, they're an obstacle to peace. Really, the, the U.S. is not using you know its power to make any change there. And until very recently, until what was it, December, that uh, Obama and through the U.N didn't abstain or try to block a Security Council resolution against Palestine. So, you know, <laughs> um, yes, it's horrible what is what seems to be in the works now, but I don't know that U.S. policy towards the Palestinians has ever been good.
1: It's about the same as the government here in Australia, whatever government it is, too. When did you first arrive in Afghanistan?
5: Let's see. It would have been... The winter of 2014, I believe, so December of 2014.
1: Can you describe the city of Kabul?
5: What I've seen is somewhat limited. Maybe I should share the like the parameters of my visit. You know, I met by a couple of members of the Afghan Peace Volunteers at the airport, and then we go by taxi for about an hour. another part of the city, and I I stay in a house with some students who are FMP volunteers. The students are from the province of Bamiyan and are either high school students or university students in Kabul for their studies, so mostly I'm going walking between that apartment just a couple blocks away is the Border Free Nonviolent Community Center where a lot of their activities are. So often I would only walk a couple of blocks <laughs> to that center and back. On different visits, I have excursions to other parts of the city for one of their projects. You know, um, this last visit, I went with two groups of Afghan Peace Volunteers to different women's homes. The volunteers were doing that survey to see which families would be selected to sew duvets for a winter like comforter project, raised to see which families seem to be most in need. So I have seen more parts of the city through visits such as that, but pretty much my, my travel is quite confined there. Is it
1: confined because of safety?
5: For safety, yes. I have less movement than, I would say, Afghan women. But as, you know, one volunteer said, one male volunteer, you know, even he doesn't get out so much because the pollution, especially in the winter, is just so horrible. I understand that um, there were something like 3,000 pollution-related deaths last year, and the, the air quality is just very poor, especially late afternoon and into the morning. So pollution is part of the issue. Security is certainly a big issue because people always accompany me when I, I walk or go in a taxi somewhere. And, of course, they're put at risk by by being with me. So I, I don't tend to ask to go to places, but, you know, when I'm invited to join them, I go.
1: What causes the pollution?
5: I think in um, in part it's because so many people are are living in this the city, you know, surrounded by mountains that the you know, the poor air is getting trapped there. And people are burning everything in the winter to stay warm. You know, there's few people have the money to buy wood. They may be burning clothes, they may be burning plastic, they may be burning coal. So what they are burning is one source of the pollution, certainly.
1: We're going to talk about the work of the peace volunteers. Can you first tell us who they are and how they got started?
5: Sure. I I know um, part of the story. So the Afghan peace volunteers are a group of youth. Most of them are high school or university level students, although there are some who are even under high school age, I'd say like middle school age, and they come together. They represent the four primary ethnic groups in the country, Pashtun, Hazara, Tajik, and Uzbek. And that in itself is unusual because generally members of different ethnic groups do not socialize or work together. And they they work together for three primary goals. They they work uh, to promote nonviolence, sustainability, and equality. And of late, they've been concentrating on economic equality. Though it certainly also Include gender equality and you know equality between the different ethnic groups. So they have a number of projects, um, including the duvet projects that I mentioned. They have schools every Friday morning and afternoon for disadvantaged children, or especially <laughs> disadvantaged children. There's over 80% unemployment, I understand, in the country. So Almost everyone is in need, but it's those most in need um, that attend the school. Originally, it was set up to be a school for child laborers. One day, or at least half a day, they would come and try to develop literacy skills. They would take nonviolence classes. But it seems now there are still some who work in the streets, maybe selling vegetables or or gum, or maybe washing cars or, you know, collecting sheet metal, something like that. But a lot of the students that I talked to this last visit, they were in government school the other days of the week. They were just trying to get ahead by going to school, you know, an extra day. So that's another one of the uh, volunteers' projects.
1: I'm speaking with Carolyn Coe from Voices for Creative Nonviolence about her work in Afghanistan with the Afghan Peace Volunteers. Are there girls included in this?
5: Yes, there are girls and boys. And in terms of numbers, I I don't know percentage-wise, but yet the school is largely, and the volunteers themselves, largely represented by, by girls as well. And each committee for their different projects has you know, uh, except for maybe a which is a traditional dance that only the men do, and you know a soccer club that is only the men. Most of them are represented by both girls and boys.
1: What's the physical dimension of the school, and what resources do they
5: have? The physical dimension. Hmm. Let's see. The school is used for other meetings and reasons as well. But on Fridays, they have, let's see, maybe five rooms dedicated for classroom space. And there are 50 students who come in the morning and 50 students who come in the afternoon. So they're divided in that way. They, they sit on the floor, and there's no heat in the building, so it can be quite cold. The sun pouring in the, the windows helps in some rooms, but if you're on the north side, that doesn't really help. And the students are supplied by the volunteers in the center with a, a notebook and a pencil and, you know, some basic items, as well as a monthly quantity of some, state food staples, like rice and lentils and oil and things like that but the, the school is pretty basic, I mean kids on the floor <laughs> and leaning over to, to write in their notebook.
1: So supplying them with food, is that to encourage them to come to school or is that to replace the money that they might have earned if they be out in the street?
5: I would say it's both, the food that they receive, the, the food, you know, is because I mean it can vary how much they would actually earn in the street. But it is motivation for the families to allow the children to attend on this day. Certainly, the food is not enough. It doesn't meet all the needs of the families. For example, one mother pulled me out of the classroom on this last visit and, when, and was asking me for help. She had not been able to pay the rent for 20 months. and. She said that her husband was injured and unable to work. And she said she greatly appreciated the food, but he knew she, she needed some money for rent. And it really isn't my role to, to help in that way. So I listened to her, and, and I said that all decisions were made by the, the volunteers, not by me.
1: And where do the volunteers get their finances from?
5: Voices for Creative Nonviolence, based in Chicago, does a lot of fundraising for the school. I, I know there are other groups, including individuals in Australia who have donated funds, and some in the U.K., but it, it has been largely international donors. Interestingly, I learned that, and I assume this is also true in Kabul, but I learned from a woman who worked in Harat, that even some of the wealthy Afghans are reluctant to give money to organizations like the Border-Free Center, because if it is known that that individual has given, you know, a large sum of money to the school, then, you know, his family members would more likely be kidnapped. So I think the the volunteers have been smart, not only for that reason, but also just, in promoting the idea that everyone can do something to help, that they, they're beginning to reach out to local shopkeepers and seeing if shopkeepers will donate you know, some bags of rice or a certain amounts to try to make that food donation sustainable or locally sustainable.
1: What do the children do at the school and where does the permaculture sites fit into it?
5: The children who are studying they, this is one of the primary languages of Afghanistan, and they take a math class. They also have a nonviolence class, and the nonviolence class is with all 50 students together. And they, I've seen some special classes there as well. Like, uh, some students take a tailoring class. I've seen science class on a little bit of art or creativity. But I think the the basics are literacy skills and nonviolence and, oh, permaculture, yes. Permaculture Project was going, started, I think, in earnest last year, last spring. I was not there at that time, but there was a month-long course for which students got certificates. I have seen some outcomes of those efforts. There's in a garden both at the center and at the apartment where I have stayed and some of the volunteers stay and they have a third plot in the city. There are some students who attended the street kids school who have also volunteered in the permaculture projects, but it's primarily the, the older volunteers. And I think part of the you know the way that the permaculture fits in is to the idea of promoting sustainability and organic gardening and just growing food for yourself.
1: Who gets the food?
5: I actually well last July I saw some children picking the mint from the garden. Um, there wasn't much to harvest while I was there um, at the at the apartment where where I would stay and some of the volunteers was. We would eat regularly from the garden, whether it be herbs or tomatoes or or hot peppers, So the people living there. In terms of the other, the third spot, um, spot in the, the city, I, I don't know what was harvested from that spot because I, I, I didn't visit it either time.
1: Talk about the duvet project. How did that get started?
5: I think volunteers saw a need. They saw a need for women to have some work. They certainly recognized how some families didn't have either a stove or didn't have the money to fuel the stove um, to keep warm in the winter. So the idea was that they would find women from the different ethnic groups and invite them to or hire them to to sew duvets and they would be supplied the materials as well as the transportation money to come to the distribution site to pick up the materials and to to return with the finished duvets. So the women are getting some work for at least a few weeks of the winter and Then the duvets are distributed to different parts of the city where people are deemed most in need.
1: What are they made of?
5: They are cloth, um, outer section like a sheet-type material, cotton. And then inside, they have been stuffed with a polyester wool. But my understanding is that this winter, they were switching to a cotton wool instead. So the the stuffing would now be cotton inside instead of uh, polyester. And I I understand one reason for the change was that it used to be that polyester was much less expensive than the cotton and and the price has equalized. And that was one reason for switching to, to cotton.
1: And how do the duvets reach the women who need them most?
5: In different parts of the city, there are community leaders. I think the literal translation in diary is lawyer, but really they're an elder, a community leader. And as long as that individual is respected in the area, the volunteers approach that individual to see who... I I believe it's always the he, (laughs) who he deems the family's most in need in the neighborhood and then those families are given a a little piece of paper, and on a set day, there's a truckload of duvets that comes to some location near where they live. It may be a mosque, and they pick up two duvets per family there. There are surveys of the women who sew the duvets, as well as surveys of the street kids, but I don't believe that the volunteers go to door-to-door to door for all the recipients of the duvet.
1: Can you talk about some of the, the young people and, and also the women that you've met over the last couple of years and the stories that they've told you of their lives?
5: Yeah, one volunteer that I've, I've gotten to know a bit during my four visits is Bargunask. She lives at the apartment where I stay, so I've been able to spend more time with her than with some of the other volunteers. And she's 24 years old, and in her final semester at university, studying journalism, I really admire her strength and her openness.
1: What has she told you about her life?
5: She would told me that, since she was five years old, she would get up at three in the morning to make bread and to cook and to wash clothes. And she would work really hard all day until nightfall and working for her, her brothers and to assist her mother. And this was her life until she was 18 years old. Um, her brothers had been opposed to the idea of her going to school. That her, her mother didn't want her to have the life, the, the difficult life she had had and was supportive of not to attend school, and she really excelled. She studied at a teacher's college for two years after finishing her high school studies and then went to university. And the first year of university, she didn't have to pay any university fees because if you're top in your class there, you don't have to pay for the semester. So she has worked really hard. One thing that I admire about her is she's so strong. Um, She really sticks to her beliefs and she's deeply reflective. Um, Her father, and grandfather and uncle were all killed. And he told me during this last visit that when the Taliban were about to kill her grandfather, he said, if you kill me, there will not be enough blood to make mud, meaning that he was an old, weak man. And, you know, what possible benefit could it uh, be to them to kill him? And Zarguna said, you know, I cannot unhear that, or I cannot unsee, you know, that. They killed all three. And as a child, to have that experience, to witness that, <laughs> it has impacted the rest of her life. And she recognizes that sometimes she's angry and it shows on her face, but she says, you know, I can't do anything about that. I can't avoid it. She doesn't like that she looks angry sometimes, but she can't avoid it. just the way that she stands up for her beliefs. As I mentioned earlier, at the Border Free Center, people of different ethnic groups work together, and one of her professors attends the university that is largely Hazara, and the professors as well, the students here of that ethnic group, and one professor was asking her about her volunteer work and found a section that she was working with Pashtuns and Tajiks and other ethnic groups. And so he asked, well, what does your father think about that? or you know, what does your father say? And she said, my father was killed by the Taliban. And he said, well, the Taliban are a Pashtun. And she said, well, I don't know what ethnic group the the people who killed my father were, and she was refusing to have hatred for all people of one ethnic group. The the professor continued to deliver bark, but she wouldn't, she cried at the time, but she continued to stand up up for what she believed in. And in fact, her her best friend at university um, is of another ethnic group, and, and both of them Maybe ostracized is a little too strong a word, but they uh, socially, they, they have found it difficult at the university being friends. Um, their friendship has been tested in that way. But she's one of the people that I've not that I really admire. And then there are, there are just other stories. Like there's, there's Haritha, which is, um, she's a student at the American University in Kabul, And there was the attack on the university at the end of the summer. And she and other students were there at the time, you know, hiding in their classrooms or in their dormitory rooms. Very frightening experience. Since that attack, the university um, did not offer in-person classes. Um, They were offering some online classes with electricity on only every other day and lack of high speed internet, she ended up dropping her online class because she just couldn't keep up with the work. And I think many, many students um, had to drop the classes because, you know, getting onto YouTube and Skype and all these things, if you don't have electricity or high speed internet, it proves too challenging. It's my understanding that the school is is reopened for for classes now. But it was a question for Haditha. You know, she had been staying at the dormitory because her classes were often from 4 until 8 at night. And it's highly unusual for a woman, a woman especially, to be walking, you know, at night. So that was one reason she had stayed at the dormitory. But her family was worried about her safety and returning to study there, and they're wanting her to stay at home. So she was having to make the difficult decision, Laura Joy, stay at home and then, you know, travel what is considered late at night there or, you know, stay in the dormitory. And I'm not quite sure what decision she ultimately made about that. But she said that the the university now looks like prison to her because of the increase security
1: Finally Carolyn is it people like these women that you've talked about that draws you back and actually what is your role when you go?
5: When I'm, I'm there I, I feel as though the most important role is to be a listener I have tried to learn some very so where I live in Maine it's, it's challenging um, to study the language um, when I'm not there but I think primarily when I'm there, it's to listen. And when I'm asked for my comments or advice or reflections, I certainly share them to listen, to witness. And then when I return here to share my photographs and stories with people, especially in my community, so that they so I can put a human face on the individuals that I've met I think so often when reporting is done on Afghanistan, people focus, reporters are focusing on some bombing or something related to the military and really neglect the impact that so many decades of violence has had on the population, how it really has traumatized the Afghan people. I I don't think there's a a person in Afghanistan who, who hasn't experienced
1: trauma. I'm speaking with Caroline Coe from Voices for Creative Nonviolence about her work in Afghanistan with the Afghan Peace Volunteers. And that was Caroline and great work that she's doing there and working with those very brave young people in Afghanistan and of course with the Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Join the International
3: Women's Day rally on Wednesday the 8th of March at 5.30 pm starting at Parliament House and finishing at Trades Hall for an after party. International Women's Day sparked the Russian Revolution 100 years ago. And in honour and memory of our sisters then, who took strike action over bread, we raised the demand, peace, bread and land. Join us for the IWD rally on Wednesday, March 8 at 5.30pm at Parliament House. Contact the women's team at Trades Hall for more details or visit unionwomen.org.au. The IWD Collective, Victoria Trades Hall Council and the Trades Hall Women's Team are 3CR supporters.
5: Come celebrate the collective achievements
1: of working women past, present and future at the Women's Rights at Work Festival, March 1
5: through 9. Events include Feminist Book Club, the Rock and Frock Scala, Breakfast with Ann Summers, Feminist Politics in the Pub, a women's footy clinic, feminist
1: activist skills workshops and a conference to stop gendered violence in the workplace. Also join us for the International Women's Day Rally, 5.30pm on March 8. Contact the women's team at Trades Hall or visit unionwomen.org.au for more details. Victoria Trades Hall Council and the Victorian Trades Hall Women's Team are 3CR supporters. The Federal Attorney-General, George Brandis, has approved the prosecution launched against Christian anti-war protesters who broke into the top-secret military base at Pine Gap in September last year. They were not present at the court in Alice Springs last week, but represented by their defence lawyer, Russell Goldflam. One of those is Jim Dowling, and I spoke with him from his home in Queensland after the decision was brought down and asked him to explain what it entailed
0: Well last week was uh, our first appearance, or our second appearance actually, we appeared straight after getting arrested in court and uh, the magistrate threw the case out because the prosecution hadn't uh, got the permission of the Attorney General George Brandis to uh, charge us which is required under the Defence Special Undertakings Act, which we have been charged under. That was thrown out, but we were recharged last December. We all received summonses to appear in the court on the 21st of February, last Tuesday. We didn't have to appear, though, because the uh, lawyer in Alice Springs, who helped us back in 2005, is still there, Uh, Russell Goldflam he's a legal aid solicitor, and he appeared on our behalf on Tuesday. They had, by that stage, they had George Brandage's signature to go ahead with the prosecution of us under the Defence Special Undertakings Act. Their charges were read, and um, Russell represented this. There's two options in an indictable offence, such as this is a serious offence. You can ask for it to be heard by a magistrate, uh, which is what they prefer, and try and push for. Simplify it, make it cost, simplify costs, everything, I guess. Or you can... Uh, a request that it be heard by a jury trial, because uh, it's a serious offence. So um, Russell, on our behalf, uh, did the latter. Basically, the matter uh, has now been adjourned until April for a um, pre-committal uh, hearing. A date in April. We don't. Once again, we we don't personally have to appear, and uh, Russell will represent us. And then uh, a date will be set for a. they they used to call a committal hearing which is uh, before the actual jury trial
1: Okay, well this is not the first time that you've faced charges such as this, so I'm going to take you back to December 2005 and as as in 2016 there was a group of anti-war protesters at that time at Pine Gap. Who was there the first time?
0: Well there was only a six of us uh, who went there for this action, was Donna Mulhern, Brian Law, uh, myself, Adele Goldley, Sean O'Reilly and Jessica Morrison. uh, For this action, we'd notified the uh, government and the Pine Gap that we wanted to have a citizen's inspection for terrorism on the base, because the the Gulf War was raging, of course, at at that point, 2005. Australia was... um, deeply uh, involved in it through troops, but even more importantly, through Pine Gap. And uh, we believed, and uh, everyone believes now, understands, who wants to understand, that Pine Gap is involved in in the bombing campaigns and uh, the destruction of Iraq that that took place then and is is going on today still. Four of us went into the base, and after we refused permission by everyone and threatened with the rest, we um, went in through the back way, uh, through the the base and uh, cut through some fences and two of us climbed onto a a roof of the base and took photos and uh, Donna and Brian, a little while later, also got up to the gate, started to uh, to the fence, started to cut through the uh, fence and they were arrested and we were all arrested and charged under the Defence Special Undertakings Act.
1: You make it sound so easy, Jim, but just to get to the base, that's a, a challenge too, isn't it?
0: Well, you, um, unless you go t- through the direct route, through the front gate, it's, it is a bit difficult. It's quite a walk through the back routes. There's pretty sparse vegetation there, but uh, there is bush and trees and rocks and uh, uh, spiky grasses, etc., to traverse for quite a few kilometres before you can get to the to the fence, the perimeter fence at the base. It's not that difficult for anyone who wants to do it, really.
1: Just talk a bit more about what happened when they found you.
0: Well, we went in two different groups, and Adele and I cut through the two fences and climbed onto a a roof of one of the buildings. All the alarms had been going off prior to this, but we found out in court that um, basically they ignore the alarms thinking they're animals or setting them off, which was a bit of a laugh, really. But when we cut through the fences, of course, they took it seriously then. And and we were actually photographed walking between the two fences, 10 metres between the two high fences. So they knew there was someone there at that stage. So we had plenty of time to climb onto the roof, though, and take photos. And if we hadn't um, been spotted with the flash of the camera, who knows how long they would have been before they actually found us on that roof. Of course, they were very angry when they did find us and uh, told us to get down on our knees and. I did uh, made a bit of a joke about praying for the base, the, the uh, etc. Partly a joke, partly serious. And uh, then we were dragged off the roof and uh, trundled off to the watch house eventually. And meanwhile, Brian and Donna had crossed the uh, field. It would be, it was daylight by this stage, and the, it was quite funny because they um, crossed the final couple of hundred metres of clearing, which uh, before the high perimeter fences. There was security running around everywhere. A security vehicle went within metres of them and waved at them. They waved back, and the security vehicle kept driving, thinking perhaps they are part of the um, security themselves. Or... So that was pretty funny. And, and then they walked the final um, 50, 100 metres to the first perimeter fence, and uh, Brian took his bolt cutter started cutting through it, and then um, one of the security guards reached for his gun, and Brian stopped cutting at that stage. And they were arrested also and trundled off to the watch house
1: what happened and the charges
0: uh yes yeah, so the charges were under defense special undertakings act they could have charges just under the crimes act but uh they were very very angry uh a few days before we were there the um head of the whole american security um the system that uh, after september 11th they'd invented a new um group to oversee all the security systems and um he was at the base he was in Pine Gap which was quite an incredible coincidence he had been there to inspect the base and a few days later we um, got into the base so we, we felt all along that the American uh, officials were pushing them to punish us as hard as possible as harshly as possible they hired a prosecutor who was <laughs> very vicious and right through the, the trials and the appeals he was uh, pushing for jail and um, when we went through the the, uh, the process, for the uh, first Supreme Court trial, and uh, it was quite an emotional trial. And uh, Donna, for instance, had had been in Iraq just a few years before and um, had seen part of the destruction of Iraq, including the aftermath of a slaughter in in a Baghdad market. She had blood on her boots. She said she had never washed her boots. Yeah, that was one emotional moment of the trial when she... um, Told the jury about that. And and the jury were visibly moved by all our stories, I think. Uh, and they were five hours out after the uh, trial finished before they reached a guilty verdict. So there was um, obviously quite a lot of deliberation, although the judge really left them little alternative but to find us guilty, unless they refused to um, listen to the judge and uh, went for uh, followed their consciences and. And listening to a higher power than the judge. But uh, that didn't happen in the end, and um, we were all sentenced uh, rather lightly, or well, the prosecution was furious because we only received fines of uh, a maximum of $1,300 um, for myself. We were sent on our way. And uh, so they appealed. The prosecution appealed the leniency of the sentence, and it went to the full bench of the Supreme Court in Darwin with that final... A court case didn't happen until 2008. Well, Meanwhile, I should have mentioned uh, Ron Merkel had um, got on to our case. He was uh, a former judge himself and he had been involved in um, various campaigns, especially with asylum seekers, uh, since he retired. And he was uh, quite furious that they would charge us under this draconian law, which was only brought in in 1952 to protect the nuclear tests on... Montebello Island and Woomera and they were scared at the time the Russians were going to uh, spy on them and um, find the secrets of the nuclear weapons which uh... anyhow they they, um, they brought in this law to protect those tests and they just kept it on the books and uh, when Pine Gap was established they uh, used it to cover Pine Gap and of course nobody had ever been charged under it before us so um, Ron Merkel helped us all along and, and um, He argued in the the full bench of the Supreme Court that they had erred by not letting us prove that Pine Gap was not used for the defence of Australia, but was in fact used in a war of aggression. So, the the Defence Special Undertakings Act says that the Act covers bases that are used for the defence of Australia. And Ron Merkel argued that, well, they had to prove this, that uh, you couldn't just say it was because the wording of the Act said that it had to be used for the Defence of Australia. And we had, um, well, Brian Law in particular, had, had demanded a um, the full disclosure of all the files relating to Pine Gap so that we could dispute this uh, fact. Of course, they weren't about to do that. They sent a pile of lawyers from Canberra, actually, uh, to the original case, and uh, they all argued that, no, they didn't have to prove anything about Pine Gap. It was all top secret, etc., etc., And the um, judge agreed with them of course and uh, so all our demands for disclosure about pine gap were dismissed but ron merkel successfully argued in the supreme court in Darwin that uh, the uh, judge had erred in uh, not allowing our um, quest for disclosure and, and therefore uh, requiring them to prove that pine gap was used for the defense of australia here we have a court case where they're trying to put us in jail and angry that we weren't jailed in the first place and um their, all their charges were thrown out, so it was it was a great victory um, for us in the in the final uh, court case. Of course, some, we also had charges under the Crimes Act, and um, we all did a few days and da- days in jail in Darwin before this, um, when we arrived off the plane to um, come to the court case. But uh, that was no big deal for any of us, except to see how terrible this Darwin jail was. So, yeah, that was it, the final outcome. of it wasn't the end of it all. Uh, when we went into Pine Gap in 2005, the uh, Liberal Party was in power, but by the time we finished in 2008 in Darwin, the Labor Party was in power. The Labor Party changed the law then to uh, close this loophole around Pine Gap. About six months later, they introduced a bill in Parliament to uh, say that uh, Pine Gap and other bases only need to be declared by the government to be used for the defence of Australia and nobody had to prove anything so that uh, this uh, so-called loophole couldn't be used again by people like us. that was the end of the legal matters.
1: Well, fast forward to September 2016, marking the 50th anniversary of Pine Gap. What was the plan this time, and who were the five or were there six people who were planning to enter the base?
0: By this time, Brian Law, who played a big part in the first action and the the, um, subsequent court cases, had uh, sadly died by a heart attack. Um, His wife, Margaret, was still very active, but uh, she came up with this plan for 2016 that we would... uh, have a lament in Alice Springs and Pine Gap, a lament about, firstly, the frontier wars, which uh, Australia had been... Well, the invaders had been involved in um, when Australia was first settled, conquered, in which huge numbers of Indigenous people were killed. And then, secondly, about the ongoing wars that, that we were uh, involved in, and in the Pine Gap was played a big part in. Margaret came come up with this idea, and uh, I thought it wasn't a bad one.
3: <laughs>
0: a group of us went from Brisbane to join her. Oh, well, I should say, firstly, that there was a whole lot of people in Alice Springs at, at this time to uh, resist the, the role of Pine Gap being the 50th anniversary of uh, the establishment of it. There was uh, two camps uh, around Alice Springs of protesters, resistors, and uh, we joined one of those camps. So, yeah, there's a group of us, Andy Payne, my son Franz darling, and uh, Tim uh, Webb from New Zealand. We all went to Alice Springs and joined Margaret, and um, one night the five of us uh, went into the bass and uh, performed a lament. My son Franz had written, his, plays the guitar, he played, wrote this lament with Margaret. Margaret plays her viola, she's a classically trained violist. That's the right word, violist. Violist. We played this little night a number of times in Alice, and then we finally went into the base. And this time, though we knew they were waiting for us. It's very high security. The uh, head of security way back in 2005 was still there. Ken, his name was. So we had a few interesting chats with him prior to the um, that night, and uh, we knew we wouldn't. It wouldn't take long to find us. But we still climbed over the um, perimeter fence and started to walk up. The hill directly in front of the base. The idea was to play this lament on this hill, which is only 100 metres or so from the base. Over the um, all lit up in the night. So we did that, uh, and we climbed the hill, uh, playing lament all the while. By the time we got to the top, the security was still coming, and uh, we played this uh, sad lament overlooking the um, the eerie. Uh, base, all those domes, all lit up. Then we were were, uh, arrested and trundled off to the watch house and charged under the same act, the Defence Special Undertakings Act, with trespass. If I hadn't mentioned before, I should mention that this act carries a penalty of seven years jail just for trespass.
1: And then what happened?
0: Uh, Then what happened, yes. So we spent a few hours in the watch house We refused bail, that's right. Tried to get us to sign bail so that we'd have to come back in a couple of weeks. And, of course, we didn't want to do that. We refused to sign bail and demanded to see a magistrate, which we did that afternoon. And uh, the magistrate had a look at the act and said, well, this act is a bit stupid, really. He said, "Uh, where's your signature of the Attorney General so that you can charge these people? And the prosecutor tried to argue very lamely that he didn't need them, need that uh, signature, and they can still be charged even without the signature. And the magistrate said, no way, you'll have to uh, let them go and drop the charges. And uh, so that's what happened. And we were led out to a um, clapping and cheering from our friends outside. So that was all very nice.
1: But as you said right at the beginning, it wasn't all over, was it?
0: No, no. They made it clear to Margaret a couple of days later that the The uh, police did that um, we were still going to be charged. Uh, They actually said they were were appealing the um, decision of the magistrate, um, but they must have thought better of that. They must have agreed that the magistrate was probably right. They didn't uh, appeal his decision that they needed the uh, signature of the Attorney General before they could charge us, but they obtained that eventually in December and um, we were all summoned summons officers, whatever you call them, came to our houses and uh, gave us pieces of paper to say we had to come back in February. But you didn't go? No, well, uh, we um, contacted Russell Goldfram, uh, uh, a great man that he is, still in Alice Springs, still doing um, work for the uh, Legal Aid Office, and he um, asked the court to allow us not not to have to appear, and they agreed to that, and he represented us on that day, on on the 21st of February.
1: And there's another court case next month.
0: Uh, April, April is the. Um, it's been remanded now to to April, and uh, they will uh, talk about the um, the actual charges and the evidence. Yes, other things, and set another date for a committal hearing. Russell um, tells us we won't have to appear for that either. So that's um, mid-April. I'm not sure of the exact date right now.
1: But it could end up in the Supreme Court for a trial by jury, I believe.
0: Uh, It will almost certainly end up there unless they drop the charges, which is highly unlikely. It will be a a repeat of the last time. Um, uh, Russell is even going to contact uh, Ron Merkel to see if he will be involved again, but we're not sure whether that will happen or not.
1: But you won't be able to have the same defence as you had last time because, as you said, the Labor Party changed the law.
0: Well that's right it appears that way but I guess uh until we hear from Ron Merkel or someone else we will um we're not sure uh, what exactly is going to happen but um, I mean we're all prepared to uh, be fined or jailed or whatever the consequences are for resisting the, the war machine we'll just wait and see
1: a minimum of seven years
0: maximum of seven years
1: maximum maximum <laughs> Not a minimum, no. Oh, that's good. Um,
0: That's good, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously the the legal system works, so the maximum is for the most serious uh, version of of that offence. So, like we went in there with guns or bombs uh, when we were caught trespassing, so, you know, it's not, um, really, it's not like we're going to get seven years or um, even one year, I I would suggest, would be pretty harsh, but, you know, it's a possibility, I guess. Uh, and perhaps we will only be fined again, we, we don't know. But certainly the people without previous, I would say, would quite highly likely only be fined.
1: But you've got to realise, Jim, that Christian activists are very dangerous people.
0: Well, it would be nice if we could believe that, <laughs> <laughs> if we were a danger to the war machine. or uh, well, more of a danger, I'm sure we are a little bit of one, but uh, if we're greater in number and uh, did more uh, serious nonviolent acts of resistance than... Um, we would pose more of a threat. Um, but its I guess it's, we should be happy. At least we're seen as some sort of threat. Mm.
1: Last words?
0: Well, anyone out there who wants to uh, resist, please do so.
1: And I'll be catching up with Jim Dowling again round about that court case in April.
5: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia.
0: Step three is finding there's a tactic
5: when
3: everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.
1: Every last Friday of the month, for almost four years, a group of supporters of the people of El Salvador have vocally demonstrated at the headquarters of Oceana Gold at 357 Collins Street, Melbourne, with various demands, culminating in five, which will be outlined in this interview, and those demands of those of 280 organisations around the world, representing 180 million people. One of those at the demonstration last Friday was Sean Cleary, International Programs Coordinator with the Edmund Rice Centre, which works to promote social justice, human rights and eco-justice through research, community education, advocacy and networking. I asked Sean first about his long association with the people of El Salvador.
6: I began working in El Salvador in January of 1990. I'd previously been working in Belize through the Catholic Church for an organization called Jesuit International Volunteers. And then after two and a half years working in Belize in Central America, I then took up a position in wartime El Salvador with Jesuit Refugee Service. That position was working accompanying Refugees from El Salvador who'd been living in refugee camps in Honduras, accompanying them as they returned to their place of origin, even though the conflict was still raging in that there's places of origin. And so I was placed in the Cabanas department of El Salvador, the Cabanas province, with the community of Santa Marta.
1: Now, the Cabanas community is the one that we're focusing on today, isn't it?
6: That's right, yes. El Salvador has 14 provinces. Cabanas is in the uh, middle northern section
1: just describe the area
6: mountainous it's uh, bordering of honduras el salvador is one of the most deforested nations in uh, latin america and, and that deforestation a lot of it comes from the its population density el salvador is also i think it's, uh, in all of the americas it's the second most populated country so yes you'll find traditionally uh just little farmhouses or little huts of people scattered across the countryside as as a result of the civil war which lasted from 1980 until the end of 1991. It became more tenuous for people in areas like this to be living in houses by themselves and so as much of the Cabanius and Morazan and Chalatanango provinces became free fire zones in the scorched earth policy, people had to abandon those areas and so when people had returned over different years they tended more to cluster the cottages close together rather than being out by themselves.
1: So post-war, have there been many improvements for the people?
6: There's been a lot of challenges, and yes, there have been uh, improvements. You'd ask different people, get different perspectives to understand what the war was about. Some of an ideological bent might say it was to achieve a social setting or a, a, a political setting for the country, which uh, would be more where the the people would be able to govern through a a, a government that was more interested in their own welfare. But prior to that, traditionally, since the days of colony, the wealthy interests had only been controlling power in the nation through especially 14 families is what they talk about, wealthy families that basically owned... A vast percentage of the land and most of the population the peasants were landless almost slave-like workers uh, on those plantations on those, those farms sugarcane farms beef farms i guess through the war we could say that what was achieved was participative democracy and many people would say that that's uh, amazing that to reach that stage from where the death squads would rule completely in the 60s and 70s or operating through the police, that anyone, any union leaders, any rural community leaders who were trying to stand up to support the rights of the people would just be murdered after the peace accords, after the end of the war. The really significant thing that was achieved was that uh, there was the ability for people to be able to speak out and to reclaim their their own interests uh, through political process. Also, we've had now two presidencies. It's the halfway through the second presidency, which has been won by the FMLN political party, which is was the main grouping of the five guerrilla groups in El Salvador. The, the Farabunda Marti National Liberation Front.
1: Is there a history of multinational mining companies in that area?
6: No. There's been one other company that has tried to open a mine and... I think some of their issues were about uh, contamination of streams as well, such that they left El Salvador. I don't know too much about the circumstances of them leaving. Whether that was particularly due to the gold price fluctuations or that kind of thing, I'm not sure. But but no, there's been no metals mining in uh, in El Salvador on a large scale.
1: What can you tell us about the history of Oceana Gold in the area?
6: Oceana Gold got involved with El Salvador in, I think, 2012, late in 2012, or maybe it was late 2013, that they purchased a, they as a gold producer who at that stage had their mines, two mines, I think, in New Zealand, and one significant mine in the Philippines, that uh, the mine's called Didipio in the Philippines. That mine in the Philippines has been their, their biggest earner. So in 2007, Twelve, They originally bought shares in a Canadian small gold exploration company whose only significant assets were exploration work being done in El Salvador. Sorry, who had carried out exploration work in El Salvador and then I think in about 2007 had applied for the second stage of a license which was a production license to be able to go into production stage. And it seems that within the mining interest, uh, mining industry That's quite normal for smaller companies to be doing a lot of the exploration and then when they have a project which is ready to go into production stage, they would, as as a company, be sold to a bigger company that's more accustomed to and has the skills and experience in the production work. So Oceana Gold in 2012 got a significant stake in Pacific Rim Mining from Canada. And then in 2013, they made a complete purchase of Pacific Rim. So it became a subsidiary of Oceana Gold uh, via a share swap. The value of which they paid in shares was, I think, about 12 million US dollars.
1: Not much, is it?
6: No, but I guess the only asset Pacific Rim had was really uh, a lawsuit. So if they didn't have uh, any functioning mines or anything. What Oceana Gold uh, Based in Collins Street, with its CEO Mick Wilkes. what they were buying was not really a mine. They were buying a, a lawsuit.
1: And why was the lawsuit instigated?
6: You'd have to ask the company that, I guess. But from the perspective, our perspective of human rights development NGOs, unions who are involved, and then church groups who are involved in the campaign against Oceana Gold, who have become awakened of their work through the process of through their involvement in El Salvador, through their uh, deciding to, to buy the, the lawsuit-slash-mining-exploration company. What we would see is that in 2007, when Pacific Rim Mining, when they applied for the production licence, through the local community becoming concerned and becoming interested of, in, well, what are the implications of, of this for our life and for our lifestyle, and we've never had gold mining here and through international solidarity links with the the community of Santa Marta and through their representative organisation called ADES, they said, we'd better have a better look at this. So with the production licence application lodged with the government by Pacific Rim, it included an environmental impact statement and ADES of the Santa Marta community, this NGO, local NGO contracted an international expert in environmental impacts of mining and asked this expert to conduct an audit of the EIS, the Environmental Impact Statement. And the report back from the expert showed, you know, numerous holes, numerous ways in which the Environmental Impact Statement had inaccuracies in it and was not properly done. And so that's pretty incredible that... uh, you know villages from El Salvador are able to, through the links of international solidarity, able to reach this level of of, of power of redressing it's the, the kind of the mouse and the lion kind of stuff the, the mouse that roared. Uh, so with the experience and expertise of international mining, they were able to stand up to them and at the same by a, you know contracting an expert to provide this, they were able to show the holes in it. So the Salvadorian government, which was a right-wing, very conservative government at that stage, with the presidency when they received these concerns from the about the environmental impact statement, their response to Pacific Rim mining was to say, uh, no, this is not adequate. You need to resubmit your application for a production permit with the improvements, made, the improvements highlighted here made to the environmental impact statement.
1: What were the concerns about a gold mine in El Salvador by the people?
6: El Salvador, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the most deforested countries in the Americas. It is incredibly densely populated. It's in a tropical area, which is part of the Pacific Rim earthquake-prone area, so there's regular earthquakes happen there the reason why there's gold there sort of relates to the same reason why it's quite geologically volatile, that there are a number of volcanoes in El Salvador. Some of them occasionally, you know, they're they're mainly not live or anything, but some of them will occasionally be putting out smoke and that kind of stuff, so they're not completely dormant either. So it's that kind of uh, territory that is, and it seems that that's the kind of territory where gold mining is often more possible as well. But part of that consequence is that Uh, Also, it's, uh, you know, in Central America, so prone to being bashed by hurricanes that come in from the the Caribbean and hit the Central American isthmus, uh, which then throughout different Latin American countries, cause tremendous flooding, cause mudslides, and especially if you've got deforested hillsides that can get overloaded with water, then that's when the massive mudslides can happen. So all these sorts of concerns raise the question to the people about, well, is this the kind of area where you want to have a gold mine? And and why would a gold mine be of concern? Well, we need to be aware of the way in which industrial-level mining happens. The El Dorado mine project in El Salvador, uh, in the Cabanas province, that uh, they were trying to get a production license for, is... an an old mine that was closed down many years ago because it was no longer reaching satisfactory levels of economic return for the mining being done there. And so what's changed, though, to be able to make people interested in reopening it, as in many places in the world, is the fact that the price of gold has gone through the roof so that it's now much more economically attractive to be able to reopen these mines the gold is uh, mixed in amongst the, the rock and so the mining means pulling out all of the, the quarry stone or, or soil or earth and the gold is thin, thin traces or, uh, through the, uh, the earth that is pulled out such that the process means that first all of this ore that is uh, mined uh, that is pulled out is mixed with large amounts of water and then forming a a mud slurry, and then you add copious quantities of cyanide into this slurry in order to get the gold to drop out, to separate from the earth. So that's the, the mining process, and then all of this slurry, when you get the gold coming out, the leftover slurry gets poured into tailings dams, large dams, which similar to what we've seen in Brazil, where the dam wall collapsed, causing the the contamination of the rivers when the, the flooding of the village with this great wall of mud that was uh, billets on joint projects, I think, in Brazil about 12 months ago. So in a similar way, this is what was being proposed for El Salvador, that there would be tailings dams where all of this slurry would be held. And uh, what were then the questions were then is, well, what are the risks about contamination of water supply? And that's been the primary issue, I guess, about with a country that just has one river, one major river, which is uh, such an important source of water in fact for the capital, water for all of the people that live along it, for the lives of fishermen that uh, work on the river, for agriculturists who are using that water to be able to nourish their crops, for villagers who are pumping that water up to their villages or the water that's uh, feeding from springs all of these concerns were that well what does this mine and and the copious amounts of cyanide that they're going to be putting into it what are the implications for that part of this process as well that when you crush the ore and then mix it in with the water and then add the cyanide as well as the gold being released and separated out from the earth you're also releasing other chemicals um, typically whenever you're mining for gold chemicals which are normally found with gold and so key ones there are arsenic and mercury. And then as well from the rock and the, uh, the ore you'll get, when that is dumped, you'd get oxidisation happening of the, the, when it's exposed to the air, uh, which then also creates acid leaching coming from the uh, the ore and flowing into rivers to contaminate. So they're the, the concerns, I guess, basically cyanide first that's being brought in to be able to put in release of arsenic mercury and other heavy metals and then acid leaching.
1: I'm speaking with Sean Cleary who is the International Programs Coordinator with the Edmund Rice Centre and it's true also that the people have paid a a price for their opposition to this mine?
6: I think there's been about 11 people who have uh, died as a result of conflict relating to the the mine. So key amongst those of the first people to die were some of the local villagers. three of them who were, through their work with ADES, Santa Marta, the NGO, who were targeted and assassinated, three of them who were voicing opposition to the mine and saying, this is not going to be good for our water supply, this is not going to be good for our families. And so over a period of about 12 months in 2009 three of these activists were targeted and were assassinated and and then there have been killings of pro-mining people as well so it's yes the, the person who was previously the director of Pacific Rim mining in El Salvador is on charges or is he now convicted I'm not sure of uh, separate killing, nothing to do with the mine, I think, but uh, there's certainly a demand from the communities for investigations to find out whether this guy who's been found to be the author or or under charges of being the author of some uh, horrific killing somewhere else in the country, what was his responsibility when he was director of Pacific Rim Mining for the murder of these three environmental concern local people from the villages who are voicing opposition to the mine, as as well the local community radio station that ADES has helped set up Radio Victoria for this region. The young people involved in running that radio station, the journalists from that station who have been reporting on the mine have received uh, quite a number of threats over the last few years. Uh, Local priests as well had, uh, who'd been speaking out against it, had also had an attempt made to either kidnap him or kill him, and he was outspoken opponent of the mine. You know, you get these mining companies coming in and with a Shulzberg right attitude, and not aware of the level of tension, social tension uh, that exists in a post-war society like El Salvador, and because all they're interested in is the bottom line of profit, they don't give too much of a damn of the mining-related conflict that occurs around their projects. Uh, in some instances, that conflict may be directly generated by people associated with the mining interests against environmentalists, as has occurred in the case of the three environmentalists who be murdered. In other circumstances, it's more just divisiveness and the, the efforts being made to force forward uh, where there's no community consensus, where there's no prior free and informed consent from local communities to be able to accept uh, mining. So that uh, the damage done by mining corporations on local communities, as evidenced by what's happened with the, around the El Dorado project that Oceano Gold want to open up in El Salvador, as evidenced around the killings of people in the local villages close to the DPO Oceana Gold mine in the Philippines. It really seems there's no concern for the impact on the local lives by corporations like Oceana Gold.
1: The court case went for seven years. Can you explain why it went for so long and what the decision was and what's happened since that decision?
6: Sure. Like, I don't understand necessarily why The court case goes on for that long, I guess just going through the processes that are required, different stages of it, but the mechanism of of how the court case came. So it was a lawsuit lodged against the nation of El Salvador by Pacific Rim Corporation in Canada, or I should be careful to guess that, in legal terms, lodged by Pacific Rim using the Central American Free Trade Agreement, CAFTA, CAFTA. And uh, in fact, it's it's generally referred to as CAPTA, that free trade agreement, but uh, it also includes not just the seven Central American countries, but it also includes the Dominican Republic. And it's a a free trade agreement between these eight small, tiny nations with the United States. So that's the the elephant in the room is the corporate interests of the, the United States in this CAPTA free trade agreement. So Pacific Rim uh, Mining in Canada decided to open the lawsuit. The only problem is that as a Canadian mining corporation, Canada is not part of the free trade agreement. So even this CAPTA free trade agreement uh, has provisions in it which are called ISDS provisions. ISDS stands for Investor State Dispute Settlement. So it's where the investor, the corporations, can sue the state, over a, a dispute which they have. And so a tribunal, once any complaint is lodged, and, and I think this is uh, there, there's an international convention on state, and it's called uh, the, the Centre where it's, these are resolved, is established under the International Convention on Investor State Dispute Settlement. So the Centre is called ICSID, the International Centre for the Settlement of Investor and State uh, Disputes. The Pacific Rim, because it was a Canadian company and therefore couldn't take advantage of, there was no free trade agreement with El Salvador, which included ISDS provisions. Pacific Rim moved a subsidiary, which they had in the Cayman Islands, and they moved it, which was called Pac Rim Cayman, LLC, and they moved this subsidiary from the Cayman Islands to Nevada in the United States. Once they'd done that, they then transferred ownership of their subsidiary in El Salvador to be on a paper transaction seen as being owned by the Nevada-based Grim Cayman LLC. Then it was possible for the Nevada shell company to be able to bring the lawsuit against El Salvador, demanding 300 million US dollars of compensation on uh, claiming that uh, El Salvador had failed in its obligations as a nation by not granting them the production license. At the time that the, the, the lawsuit was originally lodged for a small amount and then the, the amount grew to become 300 million, I'm pretty sure at the time that Oceana Gold purchased this specific rim, uh, which was at that stage, I think through legal costs, was starting to fall apart as an organization because Oceana Gold also at the time that they purchased it put a million dollars in of US dollar, one million US dollars into Pacific Rim to keep them alive as an organization so that they would not be trading while insolvent and carrying out the, the legal case. So at the time at which Oceana Gold purchased Pac Rim, the Pacific Rim, they were aware that the amount of, the, of this lawsuit was 300 US million dollars. If we look at that amount, it's equivalent to half the national schools budget of El Salvador at the time the lawsuit began. So that's just phenomenal for a nation to, you know, imagine if some foreign corporation wanted to uh, completely remove, take away just for their own shareholders half of the national schools budget of Australia, but for, and Australia is a wealthy nation. So imagine the impact that means for a poor nation like El Salvador. So the. The and proceeded um, through different stages of arguments being put forward. There were a number of presentations as well from other organizations who sought in the dispute amicus curiae status, including, the surprisingly, the, the Catholic Church of El Salvador, which was quite a conservative organization as far as the hierarchy goes. The Jesuit University of Central America was another. And a few international legal entities, sorry, international environmental law entities such as the uh, Center for International Environmental Law in, in Washington, D.C. Mm. With the proceedings of the case, evidence was received. There's also, through one of the, the issues which we have as uh, people concerned about this whole issue and concerned about ISDS provisions in free trade agreements, and therefore, quite surprised to be relieved to see that President Trump has uh, seemingly abandoned the the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which did include or does include a lot of ISDS provisions, which would further implicate things for Australia. So part of our concern about the whole ISDS mechanism is that it's a bit of a kangaroo court that three arbitrators, the decisions are made by, by three arbitrators who... Are not, uh, you know, independent uh, jurists, but rather are people who are involved in these sorts of industries, and people who are regularly maybe uh, acting as lawyers on behalf of mining corporations or, or that sort of thing. So the process is that each of the two litigants, the both sides of the of the uh, process, would nominate one person from the panel of people who are accredited with the International Centre for state investor disputes, and then the third member would be appointed by the centre itself as uh, a more neutral sort of person, supposedly. So you have the three arbitrators who are the ones that then basically receive all the evidence and then eventually release their decision. Why it took seven years, I don't know. We were, and I think for the last uh, 18 months, we were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for a decision now when the decision did come down it ruled against oceana gold and it ruled in favor of el salvador and as well of the uh, 14 million dollars that el salvador spent in legal fees they then claimed for the need to have reimbursement for by oceana gold or technically by the, the litigant which was this shell company in nevada pat rim cayman llc the award of the tribunal was of $8 million to be paid to uh, El Salvador by the litigant. The basis or the reasons for the award, I guess, came down to saying that it was not a legitimate claim, not a legitimate lawsuit, given that the main grounds upon which El Salvador had not issued a production licence, there's no question about whether El Salvador had the right to not issue a production licence, it was saying that El Salvador that, that wasn't entertained. But basically, the finding was, you know, that the fact that Oceana Gold had not properly complied with the process to be able to make a, uh, a production application. And so a lot of that came to the failure to resubmit a new environmental impact statement. It's now 140, 150 days, something like that, since the award was presented by tribunal. Uh, in favour of El Salvador and so under the uh, dispute rules, the company had 120 days to either seek an annulment of the award and then have the case retried, if they were successful in their application for annulment, or to uh, accept the award and to make the payment of the uh, $8 million, but the latest information we have on that, uh, which is, haven't verified yet, it's information from Oceana Gold is that Luis Melgar, the lawyer for El Salvador, had lodged a subsequent, ap- subsequent application for the amount to also include interest payments. And as a consequence of that, Oceana Gold stated to us that in the legal processes, that application means the clock of 120 days is reset. I only had that information from Oceana Gold on Friday, and so we'll need to uh, get confirmation of that from Washington, D.C. in the next few days.
1: And now in February 2017, you have 280 organisations from around the world saying pay up and pack up from El Salvador. You use a bit stronger language than that?
6: Well, I don't know if it was stronger. The rally outside of Oceana Gold on Friday lunchtime, I thought I was just uh, translating that message from these organizations that include you know national union federations of canada the united states of australia church organizations community concerned organizations development organizations broad range of not just your usual lefties or, or greenies or whatever but a very broad group of organizations you know really sending a message to oceanic gold so when i was uh, Translating the "pay up and, and get out" message to, into Australia, in my sense, it was to Oceana Gold. Our request to you would be to uh, pay up and piss off from El Salvador.
1: And what are the people demanding at this time?
6: The situation of conflict is still one that's very tense in this, you know, this rural village area of El Salvador. I lived in this this province for nine years, so have a very good sense of it. That uh, the capital of the province is a town just up the road from the proposed mine area, the town called Sensuuntepeke. You walk through the main street of Sensuuntepeke, the, the the central square, and, and you'll notice people, you know, are aware of their market day. It'd be much more busy, I guess. A fairly tight, closed community. So, to be bringing in the outside elements, to be disrupting the kind of normal existence of people there is not comfortable for the local community, I guess. And when the country is still in a stage of 25 years after the vicious and cruel war, which was mainly provoked by our external interests as it was front line of the Cold War, there's a need for healing, a need for faith and calmness, a need for lack or for less outside intervention the fact that Oceana Gold, you know, trying to feed the media, trying to feed the conflicts around the mine, trying to convince locals that, you know, the, vastly exaggerating the number of jobs that will be produced by the, the very mechanised mining industry, trying to, in that way, I would accuse them of exploiting the poverty of people there by a promise, a, a false promise of, of a number of jobs, a false promise of the number of uh, the benefits of, of mining brings an an underestimation of the risks of mining. Oceana Gold carry on about being uh, environmentally sensitive mining corporation or responsible mining and it's just bullshit in countries like this where poverty is at such a high level that we've seen time and again that if there's any question about safety or maintaining decent environmental standards it's often easier to pay someone off than to meet the standard. Uh, whether that comes to the construction of dam walls, as we've seen by the Billiton Joint Venture in Brazil with the mine wall, the the, the tailings dam wall collapsing and and killing, I can't remember if it was over 100 people. But if you've got companies who are as uh, reputation- conscious as, as billets on being caught out in this kind of thing, then why would we be expecting a higher standard from a cowboy outfit like Oceana Gold Corporation? So I guess what local people would really be asking is, yes, this stop Oceana Gold, you know, stop paying for the publication of advertisements in, in local papers there and using your kind of Cold War counterinsurgency theory to be sponsoring local sports teams. That's Collins Street Corporation paying the sponsorship being only in the form of, you know, buying T-shirts for a local team. We've put your Oceania Gold logo on them. It's, you know, seen as a significant aspect of the, for the poor people there, a significant sponsorship, but it's, it's really just crumbs from the corporate table from Collins Street, and uh, it's really exploiting the poverty of the people there. So it's, it's pretty evil. So uh, I have very little respect for Mick Wilkes as the CEO of Oceana Gold as he sits in his Turek mansion and as he uh, you know, has his kids or grandkids in private schools here in Melbourne. It's just pretty disgusting that an individual can be like that with no concern for and, and for buying a lawsuit basically which was going to rip off El Salvador for half the national school's budget. I find that quite vomitous. So the request to Oceana Gold would be to just get out of El Salvador, pay what you owe. They should be paying thirteen million of the costs of the Salvadoran government, thirteen million US. The legal process has said they only have to pay eight million, but in fact also that debt is against a shell company in Nevada, this PACRIM Cayman L L C Oceana Gold of course can just fold down the subsidiary and walk away with paying nothing because the shell company has zero assets. I just find it disgusting and, and shameful for us as Australians.
1: So what's the answer?
6: The colourful language, I think. But at, at a bigger level, I think that's a good question, that we heard, you know, the sense of when we say that El Salvador won the lawsuit, well, I'm not sure they really did win the lawsuit, maybe. at the, or, or in a bigger picture, kind of, they might have won that battle. But when we have these free trade agreements and investment treaties and whatnot, which empower kangaroo courts like ICSID in Washington, D.C., this tribunal that's that's heard this case, then, yes, I think that's the, the bigger question, the bigger structure that we have to overthrow, which is allowing multinational corporations to be getting away with human rights abuses. There's moves that are underway at the moment for an international treaty on multinational corporations and their human rights records. So that's really positive, and you would hope that we, if a t- treaty is achieved, and probably it would be in the next 12 months, that it would have enough nations supporting it to enter into, uh, to become a strong international instrument in international humanitarian law. But the other thing we really need to look at is ISDS provisions, both in they're in, in investment agreements, they're in free trade agreements, and really they're prejudicing the sovereignty of nations, the right for self-determination, and the only people that benefit from them are multinational corporations uh, who are prepared to exploit them, The Robert French, the Chief Justice of Australia's High Court, uh, who's only recently retired as, as Chief Justice. On two occasions, you know, at, at legal conferences, he's been able to choose the topic on what he, which he would speak to. And in one conference in Darwin and one in Hong Kong, he's delivered, chosen to address the issue of ISDS and raise his concerns about what he terms as forum shopping. And this is, he sees, I think, as a, a corruption of our legal process, our national and international legal processes, because multinational corporations are able to shop around and choose whichever ISDS provisions of whichever free trade agreement they would choose to so in the same way that pacific rim in canada moved their subsidiary from the cayman islands to nevada to then be able to use the cafta provisions through a u.s space subsidiary we saw the same thing i think with philip morris international or philip morris us where they transferred ownership of the australian subsidiary philip morris australia to a subsidiary called philip morris asia because Philip Morris Asia was based in Hong Kong and then Australia has an investment agreement with Hong Kong and that includes ISDS provisions. So Philip Morris Asia was then the body which was de facto suing Australia for our plain packaging tobacco legislation. So that, I think, is another classic example of forum shopping. You know, and again, it's fortunate that the result of that, that they weren't successful in pursuing that case, good on you, Nicola Roxon, and others who are involved in implementing those changes and in defending the the case uh, against Philip Morris. But why do these possibilities exist for multinational corporations in the first place? That's the bigger problem. The fact that ISDS, Investor State Dispute Settlement, exists within these international treaties, and the fact that our sovereignty and the sovereignty, especially of smaller nations, is undermined by it.
1: Certainly is. That's Sean Cleary from the Edmund Rice Foundation in Brisbane. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at four o'clock. Stay
4: tuned for Done By Law in just a moment. Bye Mm -hmm. for now.